welcome to the Max 6 Community Connections radio show and podcast with your host, Jennifer Burwell and Kyle McIntosh. Max 6 builds better communities where people and businesses thrive. We are broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center in Tempe, Arizona, and we'll be shining a light on the incredible stories of businesses we work with and how they are serving our broader community. And here is this week's Community Connection. Today, we have Mike Jones, the CEO of Resound Creative, to tell us about branding and why it's so important for businesses, among many other things. First, Jen, good to see you. Hello, good to see you virtually, too. Uh, Welcome, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on today. Definitely. We're excited to have you. So I guess, Mike, to start out with, uh, tell us a bit about yourself where did you grow up? How'd you find your way into this? Yeah. Oh, you want me to go back that far? Go All back, right. Go back. All right. Uh, I actually grew up right here in Phoenix. Uh, born and raised in Phoenix. Went to North High School in downtown Phoenix, uh, which was a f- fantastic experience, kind of getting to know uh, a wider diversity of cultures than I had prior to high school. Uh, I was actually just having this conversation with somebody of going to a, an inner city school in the late 90s in Phoenix, where as a as a white dude, most of my like the greater context of my classmates was all a lot of like Hispanic people and learning like, you know, prior to that point, I think if you had asked me like, oh, tell me about, you know, Hispanic culture. And I would have told you some monolithic type total gross, you know, generalization. Right. And going to a school with a bunch of different people from you know, some born here, some born in Mexico, some born in like Nicaragua, you know, all over, you know, Central and South America, going to high school here and realizing like every single place has its own culture. And it was a really good reminder, like there's no such thing as monolithic culture. Very true. So anyway, not to get into into the uh, the weeds on the... Let's just talk about that. Diversity but... <laughs> stuff. But like, I don't know, that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately and... That's like one of my one of my deeper kind of experiences, like kind of not being a part of my own kind of normal. I don't know, whatever you call your kind of natural, you know, culture uh, that you're born into, I guess. I don't know. So anyway, uh, North High School and I attended Northern Arizona University and then ASU uh, for a bit. Didn't actually graduate because I'm a slacker uh, and realized I really love graphic design and business. And so I pursued that as a career um, and just was super blessed to have some opportunities early in my career to be able to do that without a degree. Um, Had some great mentors who really helped me. um, And I think I made up for some of that lack of education through those experiences, Um, some great jobs early on, and then met up with a couple friends of mine and developed this concept for a business that eventually became Resound. Uh, We started the company in 2009 and really figured out very quickly, like we love brand. We love helping organizations figure out their identity, who they are, how to tell that story and show the world what they do and how it's different from everybody else. So we've been doing that for the last uh, 11 plus years, and we've grown in a lot of different ways. Um, Obviously, moved into Max 6 back in 2016, I think, Wow, which is nuts. Started in the co-working space and just recently moved into our own suite right here in the same community, which I love. I love that we like got our own space, but didn't leave a community. That was a huge win for me. Us so. us too. We were just talking prior to the show about how 
beautiful your space is. <laughs> yeah, we've we've uh we've invested in the space for sure. We uh we ran the PL and we're like, oh yeah, we spent quite a bit on that. <laughs> but it's coming together. Uh you know, we uh we added a partner, my friend Sam joined the team back in October and he added a whole new um service offering, which is a lot of video production, photography, and audio production that we weren't able to do in-house before. And now that we have all that, um, it just made sense to have our own space where we can start to do that uh, more officially. And so we've actually got our own small studio space. We actually have our very first in-the-studio video shoot with a live actor next week. We're super excited about that. We don't have to be bumming around trying to find somebody else's space like all the meeting rooms at Max 6. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to be doing that. And then we actually have... um, uh, this is stuff I'm excited about, but we have uh, a, a new client over in Florida who's shipping us 58 of their products to do a f- uh, product uh, shoot next week as well. So that's very cool. Uh, we're going to be keeping that studio full of activity, which is the whole point. I'm so curious about what the product is. Is it a secret? I'm no, no, not a secret. I will totally tell the world about this awesome, super cool product line called super cool (laughs) that was a terrible pun because you can't use the word in the uh, whatever um yeah so their name's super cool uh they produce a ton of different products but they're all primarily related to lubricants that they manufacture in-house uh completely from soup to nuts in their facility in florida and they they're lubricants for like air conditioners particularly in automotive so you probably actually have some super cool lubricant in your car right now. Um, they sell to tons of mechanics uh, across the world, actually. Um, and then they also gotten into HVAC systems, so both residential and commercial, um, and then also into more industrial uses. So like if you've got a power generation plant, you probably have an HVAC system in there that's highly specialized. You've got to have a very particular type of lubricant that's specced exactly to your particular uses. Um, So they do not only like, you know, their own product lines, but they also do private label. They also do custom lines uh, for, you know, big industrial use. So uh, very cool company. They are super Super cool. cool. (laughs) (laughs) You're catching on. (laughs) We made a lot of super cool jokes over the last like two months. (laughs) So I have questions about super cool for sure. Um, but if we back up just a second and talk about, um, what was your original major when you were at NAU? I thought I was going to become a history professor. So I was on track in my head, not on paper in my head. I was on track to do, you know, eight to 12 years of higher education, academic work and get a PhD and teach history at a university that was the that was the track that I thought I was on and very quickly I think within like the first semester maybe second semester for sure I realized two things one is I'm gonna have to write a ton of papers and I realized like I enjoy writing but not that much like and especially not on stuff that I don't really care about and I love history, but there's certain aspects of history I really like more than others. And the the, the amount of like academic rigor is there. You, I mean, if you're going to do a PhD, you got to be doing research. You got to be doing um, stuff beyond just teaching. And 
And when I thought about like, oh, well, maybe I'll do high school or do some other different level of education, I just I just didn't get excited. And it's interesting that like I didn't know this then. I had no clue. But like my love of history has actually informed everything I've done since then. So tell tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. And it's even though you didn't pursue it as a uh, professor, you can act as a Max Six professor. And yeah. tell, but how does it inform your worldview, yep. how you do business, how you interact with the world? Yeah. So, I mean, at a personal level, like, I think this, for me, the study of history tells me a lot about where we've been as people, as human beings. And whether you want to take that in a, you know, a microcosm of American culture, American history, um, even American politics, like I have a kind of secret love affair with the study of uh, the history of politics in the United States, um, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, like, for instance, you know, I created a product line back in 2014 that was kind of silly, ridiculous history references of American political history. Taftly. Taftly. It's still out there, T-A-F-T-L-Y. It's on Etsy if you want to go check it out, or you can just Google it. But um and it resonates really well with history teachers, which is what we were going for when we created it. But part of the reason for creating it was this, like, especially my business partner, Jeff, and I, we really we love history. And we, and we enjoy talking about the history of politics and all that stuff, especially in America. And what we were hearing in, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016 is like, my goodness, like, politics is insane. Like, never, it's never been so divisive. And, you know, everyone hates each other. And we're looking at each other going like, well, yeah, maybe for like the last 30 years, that's been true. We don't hate each other quite to this degree. But if you want to go back, let's think about this for a second, right? How did Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr deal with their political divisions? They dueled it out, right? And <laughs> one of them ended up dead over it, right? So it's like, and, and if you want to get into the politics of the American Revolution, right? That's a political uh, war. Um, and you can study almost any part of human history and realize, like, man, politics have always been super divisive and probably not even quite to the same degree that they are right now. They might be getting a little worse than they have been for a while. But as of yet, I'm not seeing a bunch of people uh, killing each other over their politics quite yet. It's an interesting with the two last topics that we talked about. And it's an interesting concept that I'm thinking about. I'll bring it to something funny and then try and make it poignant from there. So uh, in the show, The Office, there's a quote that I just remember frequently from one of the last, if not the last episode, where I think it's Andy says, I wish you could know that it's the good old days when you're in those days. <laughs> yes. And yes. With, with the benefit of hindsight to be able yeah. to look back with using history and say, like, like you said, this comparatively to the revolution or you know different times is nothing you know or at least puts it in better perspective right we often compare our own personal like current modern circumstances to only what we've experienced right and so there might be some truth to like are things maybe more divisive now than they were 10 15 20 years ago i would probably say yeah like they probably are I actually personally believe that we've had a very like politically complacent time basically since about the 40s, right? So you've got like 60 to 80 years of pretty kind of 
abnormal politics actually in American history. But see, that's what I think helps is when you kind of understand like, well, 250 years of American political history, we see that like it's been divisive for more of that than it hasn't been, right? And so maybe there's a little bit of a return back to a more American style of America, of politics. There you can get in a whole longer conversation there about is that really true? And I think there's some nuances now that are different, but yeah. It's interesting with the other topic too, with uh, going to university and what did you start with and what did you end up with and starting with history and ending up in business. And I started as an architecture major and ended up in business. Jen in design ended up in business and, and this sort of push to have everybody figuring things mm-hmm. out as quickly as possible with the lack of real foresight or how hard that can be. Or even it, a fully formed prefrontal co- uh, cortex. Yes. <laughs> it, you, you called it slacker. I call it entrepreneur. Right? That's, that's, yeah. that's why we're all here, right? Yeah. I think there's elements of that. Uh, I'm very independent. And so that definitely came out in my college experience where I was like, this isn't being kind of shoehorned into a track and I don't know if this is really what I want. But also I think there's some immaturity in how I dealt with it for sure. But um, I've come to learn how to leverage that independence and not let it kind of ruin it. You know, know, they always say like your greatest strengths are also your greatest weaknesses, right? And I think it's about how do you you use them, right? And understanding how they work with other people. And Jen, I know (laughs) we've been through so many conversations around... Uh, you know, you've helped us with our team, uh, kind of thinking through individual personalities and behavioral styles and how to communicate with one another and what are strengths and what weaknesses that each person has. And uh, we've benefited immensely from that. So if you want to get back to the original, original topic of like community here at Max 6 and one of the huge benefits of it, I think that's a case in point where like, We've had so many opportunities, both with you guys, you know, from the official Max 6 level down to like everyone else in the community where we've had different opportunities to learn and grow from each other. And, you know, if you're just set up in an office somewhere uh, in a, you know, office park, and I've, I've worked in companies like that, right, where, you know, I worked for an agency before I started my own where we were in a big office park. And sure, there were other companies there, but man, I don't, I don't think we ever had a conversation with any of them. Right. In fact, some of them were like, we don't really want to do anything with them because they're a, you know, telemarketing company and some of the people they hire are a little sketchy. Yeah. (laughs) That I've not had that experience here. It's been very different. It's been just, I think, refreshing. It's at least a variety of cast of characters here. (laughs) (laughs) Which you got to have. A good play has a variety of characters. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I was going to say that, you know, it's, it's mutually beneficial because, you know, it's been so great to have you and resound in in our space and you've helped us so much come a long way with telling our story and really understanding who we are and what our brand is and and how to get that out there. So not to jump ahead too much, but I'm dying because I love these conversations, Mike, that you and I have of when we talk about branding, why it's so important, but also who do you think is doing it really well right now? Which one of the questions I had about Super Cool and how they came up with their name and how you feel that they place their branding. Because, you know, they could have, and maybe this is just me and my bias, but like lubricants for AC and HVAC, 
doesn't sound that cool to me, <laughs> but it sounds cool when my AC works. Yep. Well, it's temperature cool. It's super yeah. cool. So <laughs> there yeah, we go. that's a great question. So if, if, as far as I understand, I mean, they've been around for 20, 25 years now. Um, the name literally for them originated from this idea of like, well, if you're selling a lubricant that helps help someone cool something, right? What's the epitome of that? Well, you want it to be super cool. And so it's it's pretty functional in terms of how they came up with the name. I think it's grown in their industry to be something a little bit more interesting than that, um, which I think is very common with a lot of brands, right? You start sometimes a more functional name and, and you can kind of stretch that and I think get a little bit closer to something that means something more sooner. But really like no name or logo or any of your like kind of, you know, traditional like things you think of when you're like, oh, I'm going to brand my company. I'm going to brand my business. Um, These assets you create, they don't mean anything when you start, right? You might have some meaning for them, but the people who experience them don't have any meaning yet. In fact, the only meaning they're going to put into is whatever experience they have with you. So if their first experience in your new restaurant is not great, then they're going to attach a not great perception to your brand, right? And that's why it's so important, I think, to understand like, well, what is it we're trying to say through our brand? What story are we telling? What set of values do we have that we stand behind? What kind of purpose do we have as an organization? Those are the things that if you can define those sooner than later, and every company is going to be different when they can do that. Um, but the sooner you can, and the sooner you can line up those assets and all the behaviors in your business, then you start to create this kind of flywheel effect of brand, right? Where the assets, the communication, and the behaviors that people all experience are all saying and feeling the same thing. And that's where you, I mean, you see great brands. I mean, I hate to put them out there because I feel like we, I kind of always hold them up and they always get held up by others. But like Nike, right? It's one of the greatest brands I think ever created. That really, I think, fundamentally comes... Yeah, they do all the blocking and tackling, right? Right. You know, like, is the logo a great logo from a design perspective? Yeah, it's it's really good. Do they have a great name that you can attach meaning to without it getting in its own way? Yes. It's, an, it's a great name. So those are the things, like, right off the bat, they kind of nail pretty well. But what I think is just fantastic is they've always stuck to the same kind of purpose, and, and really the story that they tell about that purpose, which is literally, we want to help people accomplish things that they wouldn't think they could do otherwise, right? And in, primarily in the athletic field. But that's allowed them the flexibility. So like, if they hadn't had that as their kind of, Phil Knight wasn't sold on that as their purpose. If he was instead sold on like, well, we're no, we're just the... Uh, the pro athletic shoe company for runners, for professional runners, which is what they were for like 15 years of their, like how they started. Like that was the only thing they made. It was the only thing they were known for. Every engineer and designer within their company believed in that as their purpose. Would they be the brand that they are today? I would say no. Like, I don't think they'd even be here anymore. Somebody would have bought them by now, right? Reebok would have been like, yep, we're just going to acquire Nike. And now there are, you know, pro runner athletic shoe brand within our house of brands. But instead, Phil Knight said, no, that's not actually what our purpose is. Our purpose is not athletic, you know, really, really high quality athletic shoes for professional runners. 
our purpose is helping people accomplish things in their lives in athletic ways, right? And that expands who they get to sell to, what kinds of products they have. I mean, think about it. The most downloaded running app in the world is from a shoe company. They're not a software company, but it doesn't matter, right? Because their purpose isn't in the application. The purpose is in how they help people. It's an interesting point. It's interesting what you said. And you started how you began describing the super cool brand. And you said it again when, when in Nike is four words followed by what makes it unique, but they want to help mm-hmm. X. Yeah. And that's, it's not red means aggressive <laughs> or blue means cool or whatever yep. it is, but it's, it's this purpose that you're talking about. They want to help. Yep. And I think, you know, the closer you can get to that, you now have a foundation for your brand that not only like helps focus you in some ways, right? Like that provides focus in terms of like, what are we trying to achieve? Who are we helping? What do we want that person that we're helping to come out, come away with? But it also provides flexibility, right? So like, I've been talking about this a lot or thinking about this a lot with COVID-19, right? The pandemic hits, state governors just start shutting everything down uh, in order to protect people. And businesses are, you know, freaking out, right? Because they're like, well, if we're not open, we don't make money. How are we going to survive? And you have a lot of businesses who fundamentally in a pandemic can't operate, right? So if you've built your business on live events where more than you know, 40 people meet together, like you got to pivot. And what I've seen is there are businesses out there who built their brand on live events, right? So the entire brand was positioned. Their purpose for being was we provide live events or we are a live event for X people, right? It's great. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily a bad brand, but when the shit hits the fan, (laughs) and the pandemic hits and no one can do live events, right? They just can't. You no longer have a business. But if you build a business on a purpose that is deeper than application, right? So live events for X kinds of people. Now, all of a sudden, you have the ability to pivot without losing your brand. So you can't do live events anymore for sure, right? Your product is gone. You got to find a new product or a new service to offer. But the brand that you built up to that point has the flexibility to pivot with you and provide that that power to your audience that says, no, we still are achieving our purpose. We're just doing it differently now, which means you don't lose your audience. You don't create a bunch of confusion. You don't have to start over and build a whole new brand and build all the equity that you wanted with the original brand. And so that's like some of the value of brand long-term. Those are not short-term things, right? Like if you want to just launch a product and get it out in the marketplace because you see a six, nine month or three-year opportunity, you don't have to think too hard about some of that stuff. But if you want to build a business for the long-term, then you've got to be thinking about brand. It's interesting. I've been thinking about that with our brand and some of it's purposeful. You're suggesting a line of thought, which is, have something bigger than just an opportunistic next short-term opportunity that's there. Mm -hmm. Our purpose at Max 6, building better communities where people and businesses thrive. Mm -hmm. And never could we have imagined this 
pandemic coming. I, <laughs> nobody could have. Uh, maybe Nostradamus if he was still hanging out with us or, you know, but it sort of happened to us that we decided, all right, there's a lot of people that aren't coming into our spaces, especially right in the beginning of what yep. was happening. And okay, we still have ways to, whether it's through Slack or Zoom or these channels to really reach out and connect with people and connect with each other and uh, not just Max 6, but the businesses work with each other. Oh, community isn't just in person. You have to be standing next to the water cooler, but we're still connected with one another through these times you know shared values of entrepreneurship and growing businesses and and uh knowing what we stand for that community is even more important during these times and there's still ways where we can make that really important and valuable mm-hmm. yep i think that's a great I, I, example yeah i think that's one thing that i've really taken away from from this experience for max six is you know we've always been so focused were spaces and programs, right? We provide physical space for people. But through the pandemic, when we saw how much participation was going on through our online platforms and how important Maxix is to people, we realized that pandemic or not, what we should be focused on and what we need to build around is really serving our community and staying true to our, our purpose, which is what exactly what you're talking about. To outlive it, but it's been impressive for me because you know when you go through your day to day life and you're going through and doing and doing work and we get focused on all the things we have to get done and people aren't coming up to you every day and saying like you know I really like Max Six because of you offer this or you offer that but when we saw the reaction of the community and also I mean we had over ninety percent rent payments mm. for months that other building owners were, you know, not in that situation at all. And I think that's a testament to probably through your guidance, Mike, of focusing (laughs) on our purpose and our, as our brand is bigger than that physical space that we have because for a period of time, the physical space wasn't an option. So I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to hear that. I mean, that's a, that's a huge win for you guys um, to know that you've built a community where people are getting value, even when they're not physically in the building all the time. Um, and I think, you know, I think back to like three three years ago when we kind of started talking about the Max 6 brand and, you know, it was like it became very clear, like, that's what you guys want. That's what, that's your passion is like, yeah, the space is here and, you know, do a fantastic job delivering on that, right? That's the product, but it's not the end. That's right? the, that's the transactional what we charge for yep. is price per square foot, but that's not why people are here Mm-mm. that's not why they buy what they buy it's it's that what is a community it's just shared mm-hmm. it's shared to something shared experience shared mm-hmm. uh culture values whatever it is that's what i think we really are mm-hmm. yeah. oh, that's exciting that's that's cool to see kind of proven out in the midst of you know a major challenge like i know this has been a huge challenge for anyone in commercial office space well what about you so tell us what's (laughs) what's it been like for resound yeah so uh it's been interesting it's been i I think like almost everyone the first four weeks were really rough we had a lot of clients who were just like yeah we don't really know what to do so we're just gonna like not do anything 
for us, that means, okay, we don't get paid, right? Because if you're not doing any marketing, we're, we're not making any money, which is fine. Thankfully, we had a few clients who were on the opposite end of that spectrum. We have one client in particular who uh, just the product that they they have, the industries that they're in, they actually saw three times growth over those first eight weeks. Wow. Um, and primarily because they're selling equipment to manufacturers who are all trying to pivot into producing, uh, you know, PP, uh, the PPE, personal protective equipment or cleaning supplies or, you know, stuff that they weren't producing before and they needed new machines to, to be able to do that. So um, that was huge. And they've just continued to be a kind of mainstay for us. And then a few others. It's been interesting. I feel like the manufacturing space has really not felt this. Uh, as much or in the same ways that, you know, obviously like commercial office space, like it's a totally different, it's just, it impacts you totally differently. Yeah. And then sort of, you know, things have picked up a little bit. We kind of, and then, you know, we made this crazy decision to move into a, move out of the co-working space into our own dedicated office space in the middle of all this. Um, and so far it's been fantastic. Uh, I think, you know, it was funny. I was talking with somebody about this a few weeks ago, and they're like, that's like the complete opposite of what everybody else is doing. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right for us. Like, we always, I don't know. There's a whole, you know, there's a great advertising book um, uh, about zagging when everyone else, or zigging when everyone else is zagging. And I don't know if we actually applied that correctly in this particular case, because there's a, there's a time and place to not uh, do the opposite, but um, it's been at the timing was just right. It was what we needed to do, so it's been uh, it's been fantastic, and it's actually I think in some ways helped our our team. We have a very interesting makeup as an organization, so most of our team is remote, and so most of them aren't in the office anyway. Uh, in fact, we've got people all over the world that work for us now, and then we've got kind of our core team, kind of our leadership team here in the office. And for us, it's been really interesting of like, I think having our own space that we can start to kind of put our, our mark on and be a little bit more branded has helped us to gel. And it's even provided opportunities for us to kind of more quickly through the pandemic and lockdowns and stuff kind of get back into a groove. We lost some of that groove a little bit. You know, obviously, we, I think we do a pretty good job operating remotely you know, everybody, even in the office, people have a lot of flexibility to work from home. And, you know, we're, we've been using Zoom for like three years for all of our meetings and stuff. But there's a difference. There's a difference between doing stuff on Zoom and doing stuff together in the office. And um, obviously, there's a risk to that. And, you know, we try to mitigate that. But uh, when we're such a small team, um, it's worked really well. It's it's allowed the particularly the three of us kind of in that, those leadership roles to really be solidified on like, okay, what are we doing this week? Or what are our strategic initiatives? What are we really trying to communicate to everybody else on the team? So it's been awesome. Importantly, two things, Mike, you put out a, hey guys, for every, all the new Zoom users, here's what we've learned over three years, mm-hmm. which was super helpful for me when I was first trying to figure out what I was doing. That's great. Um, and then the other thing that I really liked that you guys said was the Zoom bingo. <laughs> yes. Our so, most our most uh, viewed blog post over the last year is our our Zoom bingo post. <laughs> so are both of those still on your website and blog? And if people yeah. want to, no, they're totally up there. I can get you links and you can make sure people can get access to those. Yeah. So 
yeah, it just took three, as Jen mentioned, took three years of how we've learned to use Zoom and little tips and tricks and things that I found helpful to know that you might not know or be able to figure out. And they keep making it better. So um, some of the stuff on there might not be as relevant anymore, but um, even the last three months. But yeah, I put together kind of a long post about that. And then the Zoom bingo is just kind of a fun idea that one of the guys on our team, Aaron, came up with, which is just like, there's these like things that always happen on Zoom calls. And so we made a little bingo card. There's actually three different cards. So you can actually play with your, uh-huh. with your uh, coworkers or your friends and not all have the same card and get bingo at the same time. Uh, but there's three different cards and they have different things you need to be watching out for. And they're, they're pretty funny. There's some really funny ones. So there's always a person that slurps their coffee. <laughs> That's one of them. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Kyle, what I was going to say is you didn't know, but that's what I've been doing this whole time. I'm secretly playing bingo. Well, you're not going to get the slurps your coffee square. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to Resound, I'm curious, I guess, if our experience is unique or if it would be similar to other businesses you work with. And uh, just to explain to people, I think people kind of have an idea about what a brand is Mm -hmm. to some degree when you explain it in terms of Nike and some of these larger organizations where it's so big that you kind of get a feel of what that looks like. But if I'm company XYZ and I'm creating, I have this new product offering and I'm coming to you, Mm -hmm. Resound and Mike, what does it look like? Uh, You know, I know what this is. I know what this product could do for people, but I'm, you know, I'm coming to you because probably I'm looking for new customers and that's, that's what I know to be my pain point probably. Yeah. So uh, one thing I always tell everyone that we work with is, you know, we're strategic. And so we always start with strategy. Even if like someone comes to us and is like, oh, I just want a new website. Great. We're going to get in a room and we're going to spend a day thinking through the strategy of your website which usually ends up becoming a larger conversation around the brand and the story you're telling, right? Um, Because your website is probably one of the most fundamental marketing tools that you have that's trying to tell your entire story in one place. And so if we don't have those things figured out, like I can't get you a great website. I can get you a pretty website, but I can't get you a great website. We've had both. Thank yeah. you for the great one. <laughs> so, um, and often most of our clients, that's actually where we end up starting, even if that's not what they think they want to start with. Like we do get clients who are like, oh, we just want a new website or we want to shoot a video or, you know, we want to put together some collateral or we have a trade show coming up and we need some kind of experience to create at the trade show. Usually where we end up is first working on the story. What is the story that you're putting out into the market, whether that's particular to a product or larger to your entire, what, all the things you do. A lot of our clients, we're almost exclusively B2B. So all of our clients service or produce products for other businesses. And nine times out of 10, if they've been in business for more than like even five to 10 years, and especially you get into 20 or 30, that product and service offering is usually huge. And so one of the biggest challenges that most of our clients have telling their story is, well, why all of these products? Why all of these services? They don't all actually make sense together. Probably because half of them were developed because one particular of their clients asked them for it. Oh, well, yeah, we can do that. 
And so now they have it. And now it's on the website. I don't know anything about you this. You know nothing about that. It's, it's amazing when I tell this story and almost every single person who is in B2B goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I know that story. <laughs> I've seen that movie. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's, I think, a universal movie of business-to-business companies where you're, you're often trying to deliver value to each client and figuring out, well, what's going to be the most value to them? And sometimes that means creating something custom that you then go, well, I think there's more people that want this, right? And now it's up on the website, but then tying them all together. And so we spend a lot of time working on that. And then we get into deliverables, right? So we do a lot of website design development. We do a lot of video production now, but starting to do a lot of product photography as well. And those kind of all play together really nicely because that's kind of, you know, great websites going to have some video content, got to have great product photos, whether that's like for you guys, like working on like, hey, can we showcase the space, right? And we always talk about like the things that you need to do to market your business are really just get people as close to experiencing your product or service before buying it as you can get. Even in restaurants, not that we work with a lot of restaurants, but like what is the best sales tool or marketing tool a restaurant has? The photography of the food in the space. What's the first and major thing that you go look for when you're researching what restaurant you're going to go to? What's, it, what's the food look like? Is it good? Do people like it? Uh, how, prove it. Show it to me. What's the experience going to be like in the restaurant? What should I be wearing? What is everyone else wearing? And I think that goes for almost any like business. And that's why like you're selling software, dem- demos work, right? Because you're giving people a taste of the product before they actually put money on the table. Um, so a lot of our work is about telling the story of what you do, why you do it, and what does it look like? What does it feel like? What benefit does it have? What va- in value does it create for, for them before they put money on the table? There's something I've been struggling with reconciling to some degree because I, I love marketing and branding and, and I'm no marketing and branding Mike or Resound, <laughs> but as I've been thinking about it in terms of or things in the like books, like what mm-hmm. your goal with a book or a piece of art is to make somebody feel something. Mm-hmm. Your goal with a brand is to make somebody feel something. And whether that's responding to colors or images or videos uh, that you guys have all done mm-hmm. a great job with all of that, it seems like it should be easier to describe or have somebody <laughs> understand the feeling that they should be getting without having to spend so much time on almost making it interpretable to that person based on yep. what it's like to actually be in a space or actually be looking at a painting in a museum. How do you deliver the feeling without delivering the feeling? Right? Like that's, that's the crux of the issue is like at some point, like you can't actually give them the, unless you give away free product. And that's actually a great, marketing tool, right? Give people the actual experience before they pay for it. So, um, you know, it's like, I think that's demonstrable for you guys of like people, people need to come in and see it, right? They got a tour. That's why most people before they buy a house have to see the actual house, even if it's virtual, right? Experience it, get as close to being in the space as you can, um, before you, before you do, cause that's going to give you that feeling, right? Now, if you're the business, right, you're the brand and you're like, hey, we want to establish or define what that feeling is, that's hard, right? And some of that's also that it's subjective. 
right? Every single person, every single potential customer comes with their own experiences that flavor how they experience the things you put out. So like, for instance, like you guys done a really good job, like establishing red is your color, right? It is definitely the max six color. That's great. That can have general kind of meaning, right? You know, oh, power or activity or energy, right? But every single person brings their own personal kind of feelings towards the color red because of past experiences they have, right? Now, you could have somebody who's like, well, actually, red gives me a sense of like traumatic experience because I went through this one experience where, I don't know, they something happened, there was a lot of blood, and that's what I see when I see this color red, right? Like for whatever reason, right? Right. You have no control over that as the brand, right? And so there is some, to some degree, like you can't control people's experience. Like you can't. And I would actually argue there are marketers out there and there are businesses out there who think that they can and they're trying to deliver, they're trying to build experiences where they can control people. And there's a word for that in psychology. It's called manipulation. Um, It's a really bad word. Nobody wants to be manipulated. Absolutely nobody. Because you actually are losing a sense of control and liberty. Right. We all want to think and feel for ourselves, even if it's an illusion. Right. And so as brands, I think great brands built on truth don't say, well, we're going to control the experience. What we're going to do is put out there as clearly as possible what we do in a way that's consistent to our values and our personality. And your personal experience is your personal experience. And we'll do the best we can to like work through that. But look, if you've just got this major traumatic experience with the color red, you might have a hard time here. We might not be the right community for you. And that's okay. And that's okay. Um, That's probably not why somebody's going to opt out, right? Like that's a pretty, that's a, that's a pretty gross, exaggerated example, right? But you guys have a set of core values. Right. And you have some pretty firm beliefs around business. There are people out there I know who would walk into this space and because you guys do a really good job communicating those core values and that philosophy of business, they can go on the website or they could come in here and have a conversation or even just look at things that you have in the space and go, yeah, I'm not sure I'm, I'm in alignment with this. And I would probably bet that if they came in here and they tried to work here and they tried to be a part of the community, at some point it would produce friction, either for them or for others. And so why not cut through that kind of friction sooner than later and just be like, hey, we're really clear about why we do business, how we do business. If you don't fundamentally believe in these things, then you're not going to fit here. This is not a community where you're going to you're going to get a lot of value. And that just makes everyone better, right? It alleviates opportunity costs for you guys, right? Finding the right people rather than trying to sift through the wrong people. It provides them an opportunity to never have a bad experience with Max 6, right? How many times do we have customers who have bad experiences because a business did too good a job selling them? We sold the wrong person on the wrong thing because we just wanted the sale. And instead, we should be saying, no, how do we make sure this is the right person and we're delivering the right offering for them so that they have an, a, a fantastic experience and they want to keep coming back and we continue to deliver value. And if we don't have that alignment, we don't make it happen because we would rather sacrifice not having them as a customer than having them as a customer who's totally dissatisfied. Yeah, I, I mean, the best thing in a sale 
would be they're aligned and they say, yes, I yep. want your product. I think second best thing is they say no yep. and, and not necessarily, hey, no, I need to think about it. But like, no, it's just not a fit because yeah. great job selling. Yeah. You, you authentically told them what it was and they're not a fit. Great. Yep. We know we can move forward. That's yeah, totally yeah. agree. So Mike, we've talked a lot about um, brands that are doing like over the test of time have done a really good job and, and a few ideas of who's been doing a good job through this pandemic, but come on, what I want to know is who do you think has been doing an awful job? Ooh, awful job. Or maybe that's too strong. Who could be doing a better job? Or is there anybody that you've just like shake your head and like, Oh my goodness, what's happening? Well, not on the business side, but on the public agency side, (laughs) you could probably list off more than I have fingers and toes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting how many organizations think that they're having operational problems when it's actually a brand problem. It's like you don't you have a disconnect between what you're trying to do and the people you serve and how how they expect you to do stuff. I'm trying to think of like a brand, like a good business, like a, a, a good example of a business brand that maybe is falling flat on, from a brand perspective. Well, here's a here's one. I. I hate to beat up on these guys because I actually kind of like Disney, but I'm going to beat up on Disney for a second. Um, They do a lot of things right. I think they get a lot of things right. They, and this is going to totally, I'm going to show my nerd card here. The Star Wars brand uh, has really suffered in my opinion. Um, They've made tons of money on it, right? And I think that's the brilliance of Disney is they understand brands and that for good or for bad, they can even like just do things terribly wrong and they'll still make a ton of money on it um, because they know that the Star Wars brand has fans that will show up no matter what. Um, but I think in the long term, and there's some structural things happening at Disney that are proving that they've made mistakes with especially this these last three major films that they put out, the Skywalker series. And so I'm hopeful for them, but I, I think they've had a major misstep in not understanding how does Star Wars fit into the larger Disney kind of collective brand. And I would say that's an overall issue with Disney. They don't really know how to tie all their all their brands together and have them make sense outside of they're kind of all for kids, but they're kind of not. Um, that's been an issue. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think really not understanding the Star Wars brand to begin with and understanding like how to be creative within the box of an existing brand. And that's really hard. That's really hard. I think they they might have gotten a little greedy. Um, they jettisoned all of the history that had come with that brand in order to make a lot of merchandising uh, money and kind of open up like all the creativity and the opportunity to sell a lot more stuff, kind of basically resell stuff <laughs> and create a new history for the Star Wars kind of universe. It was almost too much freedom. And what we saw was like three movies created, particularly the Skywalker movies, these last three that just... They don't make sense together. They don't make sense from a, like they brought in different directors for each one who just took totally different directions with them. And it's really interesting. Like you can, it's like it's media and it's like clearly storytelling, right? Like that's what Disney does. They are a storytelling company, right? And yet they still get it wrong, right? And it shows you that storytelling is is really hard. Like even a company who like, that's what they do. It's like, they should nail that every single time and yet they still don't right because stuff gets in the way 
business gets in the way, you know, the shiny objects get in the way. And I think that's encouragement to businesses. Like, and I think there's a, there's a lesson to be learned there too of be focused. The more focused you can be on the story you're trying to tell, the harder it is for you to screw it up. And every time you kind of open things up a little bit, you're providing opportunity to screw it up and go off track, right? Get off the script of the story that you're trying to tell. Uh, yeah, Disney's in, in an interesting boat right now. I'm hopeful. I think they can bring it around. They've made some big changes. They got rid of the uh, the primary creative director, uh, the, basically the, the VP of Star Wars that they brought in, Kathleen, somebody or other, I can't remember. Um, she's out of the picture of creative. They've brought in some really amazing talent. Um, Dave Filoni and John Favreau are going to be owning all of the creative for all of their live action of TV shows and movies moving forward, which I think is a fantastic move. And I have heard that George Lucas is getting a lot more involved. I have mixed feelings on that, but I'm not a huge Lucas fan. But. If only we had known years ago that we could have studied at school to be VP of Star Wars. We would have very different <laughs> paths, I think. <laughs> I know. My my son is actually, I'm very excited for this. My oldest, my five-year-old son is super into Legos. And he told me the other day that he wants his job to be to build Legos the rest of his life. And I was like, more power to you, bro. Like, that was my dream too as a kid. And uh Let's figure that out. Maybe there's a way. Maybe there's a way. Do you guys watch, uh, what is it, Lego Masters or like that Lego challenge? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Adrian yeah. and I binged that very hard. <laughs> yes. My five-year-old also has the same dream. Maybe they should get together and collaborate. Yeah. Ditto. But that show, it was so sweet that I can't remember the name of his favorite team, but they didn't win. They got voted off. Mm. Real tears mm. and sadness. Like, and it was like the first time that it was like, it was such a weird experience for me as a parent because it was real pain and anguish that he was experiencing. Yeah. And I was like trying to explain like nothing happened to them. They're going home. Like, <laughs> but he was just so disappointed. Win. They didn't win. And I wanted them to win. So the other, yeah. the, the emotional experience that the other emotion that I experienced during this is uh, my five-year-old who also loves Legos mm. and that show. Uh, my wife and I were watching the show together and he walked in on us and the level of betrayal <laughs> that <laughs> we didn't let him know and let him in on yeah. this to watch it with us was just like we had uh, snuck behind his back and eaten all the s'mores at the campfire. <laughs> it's like eating all their Halloween candy. Yeah. 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 We haven't, we haven't um, let the kids watch that one yet and they don't know that it exists. So partially because I think my five-year-old would have that kind of experience if he knew that we had already watched the whole thing and that this thing even was out there and you didn't let me see it. Oh, so yeah. next year. I, I think it'll be ready next year. A couple of interesting questions that, you know, who knows if they'll tie into Resound or, or whatever. whatever. But just, you know, tell us what you think. So what is your favorite book? Mm. And... Is that the book that you'd recommend? Oh, this is really tough because there's a lot of books I like, but they're not books I come back to. It's really interesting. Like all the books I recommend in business, I'm like, I don't think I've reread any of them. Hmm. There's different ones I recommend for different issues you're working through. Like there's a management book I really like. There's, 
I love Seth Godin at almost anything he writes, I think is nearly a perfect gold from a business and marketing standpoint. I'm going to go with from a business perspective. So that's, that's part of the issue too. There's like, there's fiction stuff you, I love. You could but, have to. Okay. Well, I'm going to go both. We're going to, we'll, we'll do business first and then I'll, I'll flip over to the other side. On the business side, um, the one book that I make everybody that comes on our team read, and I give it to a lot of clients, and I talk about way too much, um, and I get all of my Nike and Starbucks stories from, is A New Brand World by Scott Bedbury. I don't think it's going to teach you anything, but it's going to give you a framework to think about brand that is really helpful from the inside, right? So he is VP of advertising at Nike. He helped, uh, he was instrumental in the Just Do It campaign. That was his creative brief that he wrote and gave to Wyden and Kennedy. And they came up with the tagline, Just Do It, and launched that, that campaign. And then he spent, I think after about eight, 10 years at Nike, went over to Starbucks, and he did their first national advertising campaign ever at Starbucks. He was also a part of their deal with Delta that put Starbucks on every Delta airplane. And so I think there's just stories in there and his experience and those two brands in particular that there's just so many lessons to be learned that are so helpful to kind of illustrate these principles and really see them put into action rather than just kind of talking about them at a theoretical level. So um, that's the book that I probably go to. There's a few others on the business side that I keep coming back to. Conscious Capitalism, The Effective Manager, Tribes by Seth Godin. Those are all fantastic books. On the personal side, I love a lot of fiction. I'm a huge science fiction fan. So something in the science fiction, maybe fantasy, Lord of the Rings type stuff. I, I read Lord of the Rings like every summer for like five summers in a row. Total nerd. I just I just finally got through him last year. Oh, it's awesome. I love I, I was actually debating whether I was going to do that again this year, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm up for it. It's a commitment. It is. I actually so there's one author that I would recommend um, and I can probably lean into one particular book and that's Isaac Asimov. And the reason for that is, yes, it's science fiction, but what he really is telling is the story of human beings and how we think and how we act and communicate and behave together. Um, almost all of his books are about that. He wrote a series of books called The Robot Series that I would highly, highly recommend. It's a great entry into Isaac Asimov's world. You can start with iRobot, which is short stories, or you can jump straight into um, Caves of Steel, which is a full novel. But both of the, that, those books really delve into some really key thinking around like, how do we deal with being human in a technologically advancing world? And how do we deal with technology probably out, outperforming us? He saw things back in the 40s and 50s that we're just now starting to wrestle with, with artificial intelligence. Um, the word robot was really coined by him. I think it's a fantastic way to look at kind of sociology, but from a kind of a science fiction-y type standpoint. So I, that's what I would recommend. Thank you. Yeah. Jen, do you want to ask your interesting question? Oh, sure. Um, so what is one thing um, that people are surprised to learn about you that they wouldn't immediately know? Hmm. Surprised? I play bass guitar. I've played bass guitar for over 20 years now. Um, I've gotten to do some really fun things with that. So I was in a band actually for five years, we put out our own album, which was super just fun. It was super fun. It's not a great album, but 
it's one of those like check that box. I got to you know be a rock star, and I've gotten to play. Uh, weirdly enough, through that band, we actually were the some of us ended up becoming the backing band, the house band for Les Stroud, who is known. He's famous for his role as Survivor Man on the reality TV show Survivor Man. Huh. Um, but he also has been a music producer and a musician for a long time in his career, doing a lot of entertainment stuff. And so he actually plays harmonica and sings really, really well. And he was invited to Alice, Christmas, Alice Cooper's Christmas Pudding uh, fundraising event, which is this big production. It's kind of a variety show type production that his foundation puts on every year. And uh, it's here locally, and we had connections in with that. And so Les Stroud, he actually showed up three days prior and was like, all right, I'm ready to practice. Uh, let me know when your house band can get together at Dodge Theater and and we can practice. And the foundation was like, um, yeah, there's there's no house band. And <laughs> so my buddy, whose dad was the president of the foundation, was like, uh, hey, so I play guitar and you play bass and we play in this band. Let's, let's go grab a few more guys and like let's put something together and we'll be Les Stroud's backing band for this this Alice Cooper Christmas pudding event, 5,000 people watch us on Dodge Theater stage. That was super cool. So So we're about out of time, but uh, we're going to have to have you back, Mike, and talk about uh, your experience as a musician. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, unlock that Pandora's box. We could talk about brand some more too. (laughs) Uh, In between now and then, uh, can you let anybody listening know how to find you uh, on Resound? Yeah. So anything you want to find out about Resound, go to Resound, R-E-S-O-U-N-D, creative.com. That's our company website. We've got tons of resources on there. Um, I highly recommend checking those out if you want to kind of dig deeper into branding. And we've got lots of free tools and uh, things that will help you kind of think through that process. I also, you can find me pretty much anywhere online at Remarka Mike. That's my Twitter handle. It's my LinkedIn profile. That's my Facebook page. That's my Instagram, although I don't really Instagram. But um, that's that's all the places you can find me. If you want to email me, you can just hit me up, Mike at ResoundCreative.com. And that's probably the, one of the best ways to get a hold of me. Well, thank you, Mike, for being on the show today. Yeah. What a great conversation. And until next time, we're off to continue building better communities where people and businesses thrive. And thank you for being an awesome part of our community. Thank you for having me as part of this community. It's awesome. I love being here. Thank you for listening to the Max 6 Community Connection radio show and podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Burwell and Kyle McIntosh. We are off to continue building better communities where people and businesses thrive and telling the stories of capitalism as a force for good through the businesses that we serve. To be a part of the conversation, join us for a tour of the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center in Tempe, Arizona, or find us at max6.com. <laughs>